Hello, my name's David Runciman, and this is Talking Politics. Today, Helen and I are talking to the journalist and author Fintan O'Toole about whether and how Britain should grapple with its past, and whether history is now one of the new democratic divides. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books, Europe's leading magazine of culture and ideas. Improve the quality of your solitude with a subscription to the LRB. They'll send you exceptional analysis of the politics, economics, sociology and science behind the crisis and reportage from around the world, but also gloriously unrelated, richly immersive distraction from the world's best authors and critics writing about history and philosophy, art and technology, fiction and poetry. Just go to lrb.me talk and get your first 12 issues for just £12. That's lrb.me talk. Fintan is joining us from Dublin. It's a slightly muffly line. Do please bear with it. It's definitely worth hearing this conversation. Fintan, if we look at the most visible current expression of arguments about history and the history of the British state, it's only a few weeks and some of the heat has gone out of it already, but we're in the middle of, I guess, what you could call the statue wars. There are fights going on. I mean, there's something much more extreme happening in the United States, but fights going on about, among other things, Britain's imperial past, the ways in which it might be appropriate to commemorate it, the ways in which for many people it is not just inappropriate, but almost abhorrent that it has been commemorated. When you look at those fights around Colston, Churchill and others, do you see a, a nation seriously engaging with its history or do you think this is more like a lot of other forms of politics that we see at the moment? I think it's politics by other means, isn't it? Uh, you know, it's, and to be fair, this is maybe not that unusual. I think debates about statues, about monuments, are really much more to do with the present and, and how a society or a nation wants to define itself right now than they are about the complexities of the past. I mean, I'm talking to you from Dublin, you know, and, and none of this is surprising, I suppose, if you're in Ireland, because, you know, Ireland went through the business of statues of uh, Queen Victoria being removed, you know, I, I was in um, Sydney recently and, you know, there's, there's a statue of Queen Victoria, which was you know, uh, uprooted from Dublin on Irish independence and, and um, the Australians said, oh, we'll have that. Thank you very much. You know, it's a very fine, very fine piece, piece, piece of work. And are they, about uh, to up, are they about to uproot it themselves? <laughs> is that statue uh, yeah, well, on its route around the world? Where is it going to go next, anyway? Will there be any refuge left for poor Victoria in the end? Boris uh, will take you know, her back. This, yeah, I mean, but this has been going on, you know, um, in 1966. My mother woke up late, late at night. She was just about to give birth to my brother and... <laughs> She, she woke up uh, and it was a, an enormous explosion, you know, and it was Nelson's column, which was the centerpiece of the architecture of Dublin, really, being blown up by the IRA. So a lot of this stuff is very familiar. And it's also, I'm not sure you end up at, out of this process with any particularly profound engagement with the past. That's not saying it's not legitimate for people to, to, to want to argue about what monuments are where. But it doesn't necessarily lead you, I think, to 
to a real engagement with your own history and with your contemporary identity, which is really the issue. Yeah, I mean, I think that that what's going on in, in Britain is probably got to be seen, you know, like in a sort of immediate context and a, a longer context about the way in which Britain and perhaps particularly England has dealt with um, its history. Obviously, in, in terms of what's going on at the moment about statues that either are of slave owners like Coulson in Bristol or that have strong connections in one way or another to the um, British Empire, this is part of something that is much bigger than what's happening in, in Britain. It isn't just spread from the United States to Britain, it's spread from the United States to other European countries too. And it's about a moment when the legacy of empire in relation to slavery and in relation to race has become particularly politically important. I think if you look at the history of Britain in regard to statues, I think I would say that two things really stand out. The first is, is that in some ways there's been a quite Catholic and a broad sense of the meaning of that word attitude towards statues. So you know, quite close to each other in in London, you know, you have a statue of Oliver Cromwell outside Houses of Commons, and then you go up to Trafalgar Square and there's a equestrian statue of Charles I. If you take what goes on in terms of the long ago past, you go to the Tower of London, um, you have a statue of the Emperor Trajan, it's an original Roman statue, and then outside that, well, across the road from the Houses of Commons, House of Parliament, I should say, is the Boudicca statue. So in one sense, a British attitude to the past has been, oh, let, let's put it all there. At the same time, I think you can see that in English and in British history, there have been these moments of really serious change about the way in which the past is memorialised. And in fact, you know, significant fights have, have happened, very significant political fights have happened over that past. So that Oliver Cromwell statue comes from the late 19th century and a, and a political point was being made by um, putting it up. So how the past is thought about and regarded as something that belongs in the public sphere has very often been politically contested in this country. And when you describe those two things that are going on, there's something much more recent, which has spread from the United States around the world. And then there's something much, much deeper rooted. And then it feels to me like there's something in between, because some of the arguments about, maybe not explicitly about slavery, but about Britain's imperial past were very acute during the Corbyn years and particularly when Corbyn and Johnson that brief period when they intersected was offering rival visions for Britain which then were put to the test in a general election that Corbyn lost you know there was a fight going on there about Churchill and Churchill's legacy there was definitely a fight going on there about the British Empire and its its legacy so some of what's going on at the moment does also connect back, not just to the deep past, but to kind of the last five years. I mean, Fintan, do you, when you look at, at British politics, if you look at, say, the last five years, and we're going to get on to Brexit, is what's going on now an extension of that? Or do you think we have kind of moved it through the international context into a different phase? I think a lot of it is an extension uh, of what's been going on with Brexit and, of course, the things that lead up to Brexit. You can't divorce Brexit, I think, from empire. Not in the simple sense, you know, I, I don't really go along with the sense that Brexit is just imperial nostalgia. I think that, you know, it's much more complex than that. But I think what's unmistakable in, in Brexit is uh, 
two things. I mean, one is a sort of weird reversal of empire, isn't it? You know, where England in particular starts to want to imagine itself not as a colonizing power, but as having been colonized. You know, this rhetoric of colonization bizarrely is occupied by a sort of resurgent English nationalism. So it's no longer the case that Britain is, you know, England, Britain, whatever you want to call it, is guilty of having been a colonial power and the slave trade and all of the oppression that comes with that. That's somehow turned into the self-pitying narrative of the fact that we are the ones who have been colonized. And therefore, you, you get this supreme irony that Brexit presents itself as a national liberation struggle. And of course, Johnson does use this language all the time, and it, it's very much a way, really, of performing victimhood. And so the right tends to want to say at the moment, you know, that all of this stuff about the statues and slavery is just wallowing in self-pity. But you could reasonably say, well, who started that? <laughs> you know, uh, like the, the right has been as much, if not more, invested through Brexit in a self-pitying narrative. And of course, this is also true of, of the United States. You know, it's, it's not accidental that there's a certain kind of crossover, it seems to me, between the mentality of the American South and something that kind of hovers around Brexit, which is the lost cause. Lost causeism is really what leads to the construction of all those statues of, of Confederate generals. I mean, they're not in the immediate post-Civil War period. No, they're, they're very much late 19th century and early 20th century. And they're self-pitying, but also toxic white identity, you know, which is, which is around the lost cause, which could never quite be fulfilled. And we place in stone some monument to it, which sort of both recognizes its defeat and at the same time glorifies it. And I think a lot of that coheres around Brexit as well. I mean, Brexit is, is a lost cause, and it may, it may seem strange to say that, but it, it, it can never be delivered in the form it was promised. Right? So the, the form it was promised was this sort of great leap forward, this single act of liberation, which is very typical of nationalist melodrama. You know, there's always a moment of national liberation when, when you throw off the yoke and then you have to sit around for a lot of years after that saying, well, actually, that didn't work out quite as we had planned it. And Brexit entering that phase, you know. So, so this sort of self-pitying narrative um, occludes empire, of course. And I think it's, it's very interesting that there's a reaction against that, which is, you know, coming out of the Black Lives Matter movement, which is coming out of the roads must fall thing, which let's remember, let's remember roads must fall started in South Africa. You know, it's, it's it, it very much... Uh, a kicking back of colonial memories. So it's a fascinating moment in that sense, in that you have all these tensions wrapped up somehow in the Brexit moment. So there are so many things coming out of that, and I want to pick up on a few of them. I just want to ask one question specifically, I mean, to both of you, about Churchill, because, you know, the Churchill statue was kind of boxed off and you know, it had slogans written on it, and there's nothing new in British politics, never mind in the history of thinking about the recent past for people to argue about Churchill's legacy. Churchill's legacy has been incredibly complicated and contested from the beginning, but it now, of course, cuts across the fact that we have a prime minister. And a lot of people think it's absurd, his kind of self-conscious Churchillian 
comparisons and people thought it you know, around Brexit, there was a lot of absurdity for people who found Churchillian echoes in that. But I have no problem with thinking that Johnson, in his own mind, sees himself as a Churchillian politician. He's, among other things, you know, there's there's clearly a, a real sense of destiny at work there, I think. And also his career is, is a series of extraordinary accidents and cock-ups and disasters. And yet somehow here he still is. Is it possible to have a serious political argument about Churchill's legacy anymore? It just, you know, there's a really interesting political argument to be had because Churchill is such a complicated figure. In the age of Johnson, is it just, is everything a proxy for people's attitudes to the current prime minister? I haven't been able to work this out in my own mind if there's something going on beyond that. Helen, do you think there's something going on beyond that now or not? Yeah, I mean, I think that the issue of Churchill can't really be separated from the question of the the Second World War in historical memory in this country. And I think that the, the difficulty for those who want to attack Churchill for other reasons, not least, obviously, his relationship to empire and in particular what happened in India during the Second World War, is that any country is going to have, any country has symbols of important things that happen in its history that create both real unity and some illusionary unity. And Churchill, I think, has transcended who Churchill is as an individual, including his individual personality and his individual flawed judgments about a number of things. And he has become a symbol on that statue, has become a, a symbol of something that it is really quite hard for the UK democratic state to give up on. Because if you take away the experience of the, the two world wars for the British state, it's not entirely clear what remains unifying in terms of historical memory for keeping the union together. So I think that the Churchill question just goes deep into these union questions as well, because it gets to the fact that before we get into the 20th century, that the, if you like, the imaginative story that can be told about who the British people are is actually quite weak. And it's paradoxically weak despite the empire because although the empire has this real material significance and has all the moral deep deep moral problems that it has it doesn't really work I think in the 19th century to create a particularly strong sense of Britishhood at home and what does that work in terms of being a historical story that can legitimate the, the British state at least post Ireland's secession is the two world wars. Fenton what do you see when you see the British fighting about Churchill? Well, a couple of things strike me. I mean, one is it's worth remembering that the worst mockery of Churchill that's going on at the moment isn't coming from Black Lives Matter protesters or or the left. I mean, the worst mockery is Johnson. You know, when, when you have a sort of cheap winner of a Churchill impersonation contest you know, as your prime minister, then it dilutes, doesn't it, the everything that Helen's been talking about so eloquently, you know, this this fact that, that Churchill, for all his complexity, is someone who, first of all, fought fascism and was clear in his opposition to fascism um, from early on. And secondly, did act as a as a unifying figure. I mean, Churchill 
charisma is real and it, it has a very profound historic significance. But remember also that it's not just at this moment that, it, that you have Johnson's second time as farce version of Churchill. You've also got Donald Trump claiming in the right at the center of the Black Lives Matter protests in Washington to be Churchill. I mean, remember when Trump did his grotesque assault on peaceful protesters to clear the space for his stunt in the church, you know, to come across Lafayette Square, go to the church and hold this Bible like it was a hand grenade or something, you know, they'd never re really seen before. What, what does his spokesperson, Kayleigh McEnany, say? Well, he, it's just like Churchill going to the East End, you know, to be a figure of unity, to, you know, to, to bring people together, to, to show our leadership in, in, in this time of trouble. So Churchill transcends, the, the charisma, you know, is, is such that it, it transcends its own historical moments, right? So it's still available for use. But the most grotesque misuse of it at the moment is coming from the right. It's coming from Johnson. And it's coming from Trump. Now, the question then, it seems to me, is do you just join in then with, with kicking Churchill because he's being grotesquely you know, misused by Johnson and Trump and say, well, this is the time to kick him when he's down? Or should Democrats be saying, well, actually, what? That Churchill tells us about is that history is a complicated thing, you know, that actually identity is complicated, that our sense of our relationship to the past has to be one that's capable of including contradiction. My worry is that if, if, you, if you end up with the image of this very interesting moment in British politics being people daubing abuse on Churchill's statue, I think it's not one that's going to be productive for any kind of progressive narrative. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. So it is also true that this has been, and during the Corbyn years particularly, it was an acute problem for the Labour Party, how it grappled with questions of patriotism and the legacy of empire and and Corbyn himself and I think some people around him had a pretty uncomplicated or unmodified view the other way they had a very clear idea about who were the villains I was reading this morning so I haven't read the book but I was just reading a review of the book that's about to come out which is Andrew Adonis's new biography of Ernest Bevan an authentically working class authentically patriotic Labour politician who served in Churchill's government and then became a authentically working class, authentically patriotic Labour foreign secretary and seems to belong to a different kind of Labour Party than certainly the Labour Party was under Corbyn. I don't know how much you feel like, for I mean, and these arguments are currently going on in the British press a lot, that Keir Starmer needs to very explicitly move beyond the Corbyn years around these questions too. I mean, we've discussed this podcast a lot, the question of 
patriotism and the difficulty that has posed for the Labour Party. And, and Corbyn lost. I mean, he just, you know, he lost on that contest. Fintan, do you think that the the Labour Party under Keir Starmer really needs to grapple with this issue? Or do you think actually it would be better for the Labour Party just to do what it seems to be doing at the moment, which is to take a step back and watch the other side grapple with it in this fairly grotesque way? I have to say, I, I have a lot of sympathy for Stammer's current uh, stance, which is exactly, as you say, to, to sort of try to keep it at arm's length, both because I think, you know, there's a lot to play out internally within the whole Brexit narrative and the whole kind of reactionary moment. And, and there's a lot to be said for letting that happen, but also because it, it's very difficult. I mean, it's really, really difficult. How do you articulate a British patriotism and British state itself is arguably in a state of long-term decline when the history with which it's wrapped up is often a disgraceful history. You know, do you, just to take one example, I mean, do, do you celebrate Britain's move in the early 19th century to outlaw the slave trade, which is a big part of British progressive identity? Or do you say, as almost every objective historian would say, you know, that this was shot through with hypocrisy, you know, with, with the process which never did justice to the oppressed, you know, that there's a huge amount of unprocessed pain and anger still, you know, it, it's still part of the racist heritage. I just don't think you can ride both horses. It's very, very difficult, isn't it, to to celebrate the British past on the one side and on the other side, try to tell the truth about it. I think you have to get to a point where you recognize that there are there are certain flashpoints really that just cannot you can't sort of triangulate around them and also you have to recognize somehow that there's a, there's a very profound problem around the history of Britishness even if you leave aside the imperial questions and the race questions I mean I was just thinking looking back on the first speech in which Boris Johnson mentions coronavirus at the beginning of February and it's, a, it's the big Brexit set piece celebrating Brexit it's in Greenwich, right, deliberately, you know, to celebrate the, the rebirth of the maritime empire. But also Johnson talks about the paintings, you know, which, which are in the room, which are celebrating the, the glorious revolution of 1688. And, and Johnson's talking about how these wonderful paintings, you know, remind us of this great moment of national unity. <laughs> now, you know, I, I mean, come on, you know, the, like I'm in Ireland, I am Irish. I, I, I keep seeing even very respectable British historians referring to the bloodless revolution of 1688. The Battle of the Boyne never happens, you know, the, the bloodiest battle in, in Irish history, the Battle of Ockram. So th there are notions of what the British state is and how it's constituted historically, which simply don't wash outside of a very specifically English version and a kind of Whig version of history, really, and, and a notion that, you know, the British constitution has emerged as a perfect thing out of these great moments of history, which were bloodless and had no violence and were not contested. And of course, the big question for Labour and for Starmer to avoid is the Scottish question, you know, I mean, how, how do you appeal to patriotism when that very notion is very, very difficult because it's like, well, what's the patria? It's obvious that that question is not one that people in Northern Ireland or people in Scotland, maybe increasingly people in Wales, have an easy answer to.
I think that there's loads of different things going on here. Just pick up on a, a couple of them. I mean, I think that the the fundamental question about patriotism for that Corbyn struggled with and that Starmer isn't going to struggle with is a present tense one rather than a historical one. Is Corbyn managed to look like he was on the side of people who wanted to kill British civilians and British soldiers, including the IRA. That, in the end, was a big liability for him. He could have had a different attitude towards Britain's past than Johnson, and he still would have fallen down on those issues. I think that the question of British history and its relationship to the Union is a really vexed one, and it's going to be quite complicated for Starmer to navigate. One thing I would say is, is I think in some sense, the national discourse, or at least the national discourse or the discourse within the Conservative Party about those questions in relation to Ireland and particularly the 1688, 1689 has actually deteriorated, you know, like since the 80s. Because if you look at what Mrs. Thatcher was saying in the House of Commons on the, the 300th anniversary, it was very much with a, a sense of sadness and in some sense shame about the the Battle of Boyne. It wasn't trying to write the the Irish moment of that that story out of the the picture. I'd also push back a bit against the idea that anybody at all thinks that there's some kind of perfect British constitution that's emerged without bloodshed or contest out of of British history. And I think that what we have in some sense lost, I'm not sure when I would put down this sort of amnesia too, but it was very much there in the past, including in the first half of the, the 20th century, is that British history and before that English history was a struggle about trying to understand the past and that that was contested, that there wasn't one way of looking at it. It wasn't just something that came organically to us without these ruptures. I mean, if you look at what was going on, you know, like say with the Chartists in the in the 19th century, they were very much aware of the historical struggles that had preceded them. They had a very different understanding of what had happened in England, leaving Ireland out, out of it for a moment in 1688, 1689, than those who believed in the Whig version of history. The idea that there's some kind of general English nostalgia for a simple unified past in which people weren't divided about the present and about the past, I just don't really recognise that. I, I think it's a, it's, a, it's a great point that Helen makes, you know, because this is really what characterizes this moment. And I think it's absolutely fascinating what she's saying about, about Margaret Thatcher compared to, say, Johnson. Of course, in some ways, this is not surprising. Right? So the the more a construct is under stress, the more the rhetorical necessity exists to pretend it isn't. So what was possible in the past, you know, which was to say, and actually the past, we're really only talking about you know, 2011. I'm really haunted these days by 2011, you know, when Queen Elizabeth visited the Republic of Ireland. It was the first time in a, literally 100 years. I mean, the previous royal visit to, to what's now the Republic of Ireland was, was 1911. First time in 100 years that the head of state of the closest neighbour could actually, you know, come to Ireland. But at that moment, you know, there was a very carefully choreographed narrative by the British state, which was actually beautifully expressed in in the Queen's speeches during that visit, which was, as Helen was saying, it was sorrowful, it was subtle, it had 
completely dropped any um, condescending tone. It was respectful of the idea that, you know, terrible things had happened and terrible things had been done by both sides. And it was hopeful that there, it was possible to reconfigure relationships. And that was only 2011, you know. And I, I remember at that time thinking, God, it's over. You know, somehow this burden has been lifted from all of us, this sort of English condescension and Irish self-pity and all that stuff is over now. <laughs> How stupid can you be? But but the the dilemma at the moment, it seems to me, is that that the panic response to Brexit and, and all of the implications it has for the union has been, of course, to double down on the rhetoric. So it's no longer the precious union, of course, it's the precious, precious union, <laughs> you know, wrapping the flag around the state again, while at the same time, you know, setting in motion things that are that are breaking the union apart. So you can't understate, it seems to me, the significance of Johnson's abandonment of the DUP and of Northern Ireland to get his withdrawal agreement. The swiftness with which that was done, the ruthlessness with, with, with which that was done, you know, to simply say, well, actually, a part of the union is going to be effectively outside the union uh, and it's going to be on a dynamic trajectory. So as as the island of Britain diverges more and more from the European Union in terms of the customs and tariffs and, and the, the markets, Northern Ireland will remain dynamically aligned to the European Union and therefore we're setting in, in motion consciously a dynamic process of separation. And the degree to which this was just perfectly fine with Tory party is breathtaking, you know. So it was all of that history, all of that stuff about the Conservative and Unionist Party, all of the passion around Irish home rule and its effect on, on the British political system, all of that just sort of saying, we don't really care about that anymore. So the historical moment is not one where where there's this sort of embracing of the past it's one in which the past is is being stabbed in the back <laughs> while being kissed on the cheek you think about those great lol cartoons you know it's you're only upping the rhetoric and simplifying it and making it cruder precisely because you are abandoning that version of the british state i would say we could start the story somewhat earlier and that what you can really see is is some of the period really I, I would say from 2008 2009 through to the beginning of the second part of the story is 2011 we see two different things put in motion the first of them comes in terms of the problems of democratic consent to Britain's membership of the European Union that are generated around what happened around the the Lisbon treaty and the fact that the conservative party didn't accept the Lisbon Treaty either in substance or the fact that it was went through the House of Commons without a referendum. And then from 2011, the fact that the SNP won a majority in the Scottish Parliament and committed to the referendum. So what I would say is, is what we've seen over the last 10 years is two different consents breaking down and that they interact with each other in some sense quite lethally because we have consent to the Britain's membership of the European Union breaking down, but it breaking down really much more in Wales and in England than in Scotland. And then we have consent to the the Anglo-Scottish Union 
breaking down in Scotland. That is put to a, a referendum test in 2014 that doesn't lead to Scottish secession. But as we know, in the general election the following year, then the SNP won all but one of the seats. And that was the context then in which the, the referendum took place. I think that there, there simply wasn't ever any way, and this is true regardless of anybody's personalities who was leading any of these political parties, of dealing with those problems simultaneously in ways that wasn't going to put the union under very, very considerable strain. And that the fact that the referendum produced the leave vote rather than a remain vote meant that the Northern Ireland question came back into play. Though you could argue that the Northern Ireland question was going to be coming back into play anyway because the devolved institutions broke down in 2017 for reasons that weren't actually anything to do with um, Brexit. So you have a, a very, very rickety union that in some sense is experiencing a potentially fatal crisis, though not a necessarily fatal crisis. Into that, you interject a question that has been building up for some time in which there has to be a single union answer. And there can't be a single union answer because there's profound division within the union about that question. I would say that the politics of it is then made made worse because there is a way of interpreting, as Finton does, the story of Brexit as is that this has to be understood in the context of the of the empire. I mean, I'm, as you know from things I've said before, more more sceptical about that, but it doesn't really matter in some sense which is right and which is wrong in terms of the phenomenon. Enough people believe that to be the case who were on the Remain side to mean that Brexit has had this label, rightly or wrongly, stuck onto it. And that has made legitimating Brexit for the point of view of proceeding with it more difficult than it would otherwise have been. So can I say a couple of things about Scotland, which connect to what you've both been saying? And I don't know, I don't know the inner workings of the Conservative Party at all, so I'm, in, a, in a way I'm guessing. But even if it is, and I understand what Finton is saying, there's a sort of shock to the extent to which the Conservative and Unionist Party has been willing to abandon the Union. But there seems to me to be a residual belief inside the Conservative Party that Scotland is still there for them. I mean, there was this Ruth Davidson moment, which now seems rather distant, where there was the thought that there was a version of Scottish Toryism that might actually become the future of the Conservative Party. But even so, as we've seen in general elections, there is a thought that the Conservative Party, much more than Labour, still has a future in Scotland, possibly. That may be an illusion, but possibly true. And I think there's also a sense within the Conservative Party, particularly about the SNP, particularly on these questions of the imperial past, that the really deep hypocrisy is on the other side. I mean, after all, the British Empire was a Scottish as well as an English project in some respects, I mean, in a very complicated ways, but Scottishness runs through it too. And seen from the Conservative perspective, the idea that the SNP are completely separating themselves from that version of Scottish history and Scotland's past to become the colonised state that needs to break free. I think that for many people in the current government, even, it's not clear in their own minds that they are the biggest hypocrites. Or am I am I wrong? I think that's, a, that's an excellent point. You know, where it leads us, I think, is, is that nationalisms always want to purify themselves into victimhood. That's just the nature of a nationalist narrative, you know, which is we are innocent, we have been oppressed, and historic justice requires our liberation. That's the basic narrative of, of pretty much every nationalism. And 
of course, what it does is it it occludes the complexity of the history of the nation itself, which of course is never simple and innocent, particularly when you're talking about the history of white European nations. You know, Irish Catholics, for example, were involved very much in the empire. I was just reading Anita and Anne's book about uh, the assassination of Sir Michael O'Dwyer, who was the um, lieutenant governor of the Punjab at the time of the Amritsar massacre. I mean, O'Dwyer was an Irish Catholic. He wasn't, you know, an Anglo-Irish, you know, he wasn't any of that sort of stuff. He was a good product of small farm Irish Catholicism, you know, who, who... gloried in the Amritsar massacre and was absolutely delighted with it, you know, and, and defended it and, and, you know, felt it was absolutely right. If you want to talk about statues, I mean, one of the big figures of Irish nationalism in the 19th century is John Mitchell, who was a statue to John Mitchell in, in Newry after the 1848, uh, failure of the 1848 attempt at a, at a revolution in Ireland. Mitchell um, ended up in, in America where he was one of the most effective and passionate propagandists for slavery for the South, sent his sons into the Confederate Army where a couple of them were killed, and remained absolutely convinced that the slave cause was the right cause. Why? Because the difference between Ireland and black people in America was that Irish people were white. And the, the awful thing about the Irish being oppressed was that they were a white nation being oppressed. You know, this was against the order of things. So you, you can go on about this. And I think exactly the same thing applies in, in Scotland in relation to the history of slavery, in relation to the history of empire. Victimhood is always a lie in its simple form, uh, or not always, but certainly for, for people like us, you know, for white Europeans, it's impossible for us collectively and indeed in many cases individually to not be complicit in these structures of oppression, even if we are ourselves in, 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 in disadvantaged positions in relation to each other. So uh, I think it's absolutely true to say that Scotland needs to come to terms with this sort of stuff. Ireland needs to come to terms with it as well. And, you know, to go back to where we were starting, yes, dumping monuments may be a part of that process, but the danger with dumping monuments is that you're also sort of tidying up and cleansing your own history and, and you can get very easily to a point where you pretend that none of it happened. I agree with that. I mean, a, a large amount of that. I mean, I think I, I'm perhaps I would stress the victimhood less part of it. I mean, I think that the issue with nationalism is is that it involves telling a story about the past that has often but not always been asserted in relation to trying to break away from some form of larger political authority, often in the form of empire, but not necessarily always. That has the ability, obviously, to cast those who understand themselves as fighting for their freedom to think that good is all on their side and that the empire takes the form of all evil. And because empires often do some pretty awful things, it's not difficult often to sustain that narrative with particular instances of, in fact, often more than particular instances of of empires' brutality. I think that we just have to be a bit careful when we try and generalise about what Europeans as a whole can do in relation to the past and nationalism, because obviously not all the European countries had their own empires. And indeed, some of them in the course of the 20th century, including in our lifetimes, were subject to the the Soviet empire and see 
nationalism in a, in a rather different light in relation to the past historically than, than we can do sitting in, in Britain or in Ireland. So at the risk of annoying Helen and raising an issue that she tells me I raised too much, there is a generational aspect of this too. So as I said, Corbyn, who had a very distinctive view of Britain's past and a distinctive relationship to British patriotism, was resoundingly defeated. I mean, he wasn't resoundingly defeated in 2017, but he was when he faced Johnson in 2019. But not among younger voters, with whom, if they had been the constituency, he would have had the biggest majority in British parliamentary history, if the franchise had been restricted to the under 30s. And even at the present moment, there does seem to be an acute generational divide here about questions of historical legacy, its significance, what is and isn't acceptable, what is and isn't abhorrent about the question of patriotism and whether it means anything. So Helen thinks I overstate these things, but someone asked Finton this question and <laughs> tell me I overstate these things. Uh, and we're, all, we're, I mean, I think it's fair to say we're all on the other side of that generational divide, putting it politely. Um, Finton, do you think this is generational, some of this? I mean, th- there are really serious democratic divisions at work here that have many different faces to them. But this question of historical legacy and what can and cannot be tolerated in the either celebration or even just the telling of the past, there's a big gap between people over the age of, say, 50 and people under the age of 30. I mean, not all of them, and we're all different, and you know, there are many people over the age of 50 who wanted Jeremy Corbyn to be prime minister, but still. I mean, with all the qualifications that have to surround any generalisation, I, I actually strongly agree with you. You know, I think something culturally has happened, which is very profound, you know, in, in the Western world, certainly, which is that younger people are profoundly disgusted. And this is a very large generalization, but I think it's true as a generalization. They're profoundly disgusted by racism in ways that was not viscerally true, even for people in our generation who opposed racism, who hated us, who thought it was a terrible thing. I think there's a, there's a visceral bodily disgust which exists for a younger generation. Just as they feel the same thing about sexual inequalities, just as they feel the same thing about the, you know, the abuse of LGBT people, something has happened culturally, I think, for a very large swathe of that generation, where these issues for them are personal issues. I think it's been absolutely fascinating in the United States as well. I mean, it's really interesting to look at the failure of Trump's appeal to say these protesters are terrorists or anarchists or looters. You know, that hasn't worked because all the polls I've seen certainly show that a large majority of Americans actually think the protesters are right and actually think they have a point and, and actually feel that there is a moment here which is worth engaging with. Uh, so... I think there have been very significant cultural shifts. And they then, of course, reflect on on how you deal with with the past. So if you're thinking in a different way about race, then you reflect, I think, back on the past with a sense of having almost a personal stake in it. It it feels offensive to people, to younger people right now, to say, this is your identity, this is who you are. If you're a white British person, you you know, you're the beneficiary of all of this history. 
it just doesn't sit right with huge numbers of people in the younger generation. And I think that's to be celebrated. I, I really do think it's a very profound and important moment. My one worry about it is that it can lead them to an embrace of amnesia, a sense that we, we want to throw off all of this history. And while dealing with the legacy of the history is absolutely right and urgently necessary, throwing off the history itself is just impossible and may involve you with something that you really probably don't in the end want to do, you know, which is trying to come up with a, a sense of temporal consciousness, which becomes much shallower, that, that it's this, there's a year zero and a new history has just begun. The right has taken up this narrative with a lot of year zero thinking in, in, in the Brexit project. And I don't think it would be healthy for progressives really to take it up either, you know, and start thinking about British society or American society or any of our societies starting from scratch. The fact is we have to start with where we are with all the burdens of guilt and all the complexities and contradictions and ambiguity. And also all the things which are worth celebrating. The past is not just a toxic dump of awfulness. You know, it also contains for us many of the the examples and the inspirations which we should probably be using if we want to try and build something better. Helen, I think you should get the last word this week. I agree actually with what Finton says about race. I think that that there is something visceral about the younger generation's attitude to it that wasn't there with our generation or with the generations before us. I think that one aspect of it, though, I do think is been there very much before from the, the 1960s, and that is the attitude towards British history and the fact that that was seen as something that was contaminated and that wasn't something that in some sense should even be really seriously thought about. I mean, I went to four different schools. Only the first one taught me anything at all about British history. And the other three all gave me the distinct impression that it was something suspect, actually, about acquainting oneself with British history. Now, this was in the 70s and the 80s. So I think that that sense in which the British history was delegitimated by empire has very much been um, here before. We then, I think, saw a reaction against that. And sometimes I think it started during the Blair years and it certainly started. you can certainly see it in the coalition government and the sense that British history has to be taught in schools again. But this idea that there's something about our national past that is so peculiarly sinful that it can't really be understood as a national past and must be placed in a much, much broader context I think is something that that has very much been part of the politics and indeed education in this country in the past before. We have a request this week. We don't normally do this. Our History of Ideas series, where there are 12 talks by me about the big ideas that shape modern politics, has been over as a new series for a while. We're still getting lots of listeners, but we'd like more people, if possible, to discover it, particularly people in schools and universities who may be looking for new material one way people can find it is if people who have enjoyed it would review and rate it on iTunes. If you have enjoyed History of Ideas and would like to give us a rating, it would really help other people find our podcast. On Talking Politics this week, we have an extra episode. I'm going to be talking to Thant Mint U about the incredibly complicated and deeply fascinating history of modern Burma, including what's happening now with climate change and the pandemic. And next week, 
It'll be the 1st of July when we record. That is the day after which Britain is no longer entitled to ask for another extension to the Brexit negotiations. I'll be catching up with Helen about the implications of that. My name is David Runciman, and we've been talking politics. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. I'm Jesse Crookshank. Jesse Crookshank. I host the number one comedy podcast called Phone a Friend. Girl, let's phone a friend. Not only do I break down the biggest stories in pop culture with guests like Dan Levy and members of InSync, I do it with my own personal boy band singing jingles throughout because it's my show. It's your show, girl. New episodes of Phone a Friend. Yeah. Drop Thursdays wherever you get your podcasts. So work it, girl, yeah, work it. Okay, that's enough. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com.